Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the IT news of the week with a variable degree of snarkiness. I'm your host, Stephen Foskin, and joining me today, filling in for Mr. Tom Hollingsworth, who is a currently across a very big pond at Cisco Live EMEA for Tech Field Day Extra, is Field Day delegate and host of the Art of Engineering podcast, Mr. Tim Bertino. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I do want to say right off the bat, though, that um, filling in for Tom, you're not going to get quite the level of snark or dad jokes for me, but I will do my best. Well, considering that it's National Boy Scout Day and we don't have Tom, I think that you're going to have to be prepared for this whole thing. Man. I was going to bring that up, too. Like, how did we miss that? I know, right? If, if those of you who don't know, Tom is an award-winning and very important uh, Boy Scout leader. Um, he's, he's the man. So, Stephen, starting this off, I really wanted to kick this off with something near and dear to your heart. So let's talk about ChatGPT. It's a trained AI model that we can interact with in a conversational way. It really seems to be taking the consumer side of the world by storm. Now, Google has announced uh, a competing offering. I, I believe it's called Bard. So from things like ChatGPT and these trained AI models, what are, what are really the long-term goals and implications of products like these? Yeah, this is a real interesting story. I mean, first off, uh, I did not ask ChatGPT to write this answer uh, because I'm not one of those annoying people. Um, but yeah, this is a really interesting interesting story. So first of all, it's important to recognize that all of these trained AI models are basically just BS spewers who complete the next word in line in a way that somebody would complete the next word. I have actually been experimenting quite a lot with ChatGPT um, and with a lot of these other similar tools, uh, we've got Bard. There's also a tool now from Quora that answers questions. And it is embarrassing because it answers questions convincingly and emphatically, but wrong. And that's the important thing. I think that um, most of these AI models are being used so, so wrong by these companies. I'm really, really concerned because from the beta of Google Bard, for example, You'll ask it a question, and instead of giving you, you know, an actual answer from an actual person who actually knows it, it's going to give you a simulated answer from an alternate reality in which this might be true. And it's really bizarre because all it's doing is just sort of spewing out a truthy thing that then uh, says this is the answer. Um, like I said, I've been actually um, uh, testing ChatGPT Um and giving them feedback on the model and stuff. And often my feedback is, this sounds great, but is factually incorrect. Um, and, and, and you can try it too. Just go to ChatGPT or try out Bard or try out um, you know, anything that's using this stuff and, and type in like a real factual thing. Like, you know, um, what is the, I don't know, the, the, the history of Harley Davidson? You know, when was uh, the B&M Baked Beans Company founded? And a lot of the time, it'll come out with an answer that's just totally incorrect, like factually. And you're like, well, that's very useful. Thank you so much for that. Anyway, the one thing I want to say about this specifically with regard to Google and Microsoft, though, is that Microsoft was smart to get in on the ground floor here. They have invested in uh, OpenAI. They're, um, and, and Microsoft is... Is, is not only producing with the Bing um, uh, search, they're, they're not only producing something that you can actually use, unlike Bard, which is basically a, yeah, we're gonna do that at some point in the future. It, Microsoft is using it smarter. 
Because what Microsoft is doing is they're actually not necessarily just using it to emphatically answer your question wrongly. They're actually using it to improve the search results by basically having it sort of search on your behalf through the Bing index and then give you better results. And you know what? That's a good use of machine learning. And so my uh, take on this is uh, Bing good, uh, Bard bad, Quora, uh, what were you thinking? Tim, AWS is reportedly concerned about not being able to get enough power to handle its Oregon data centers and is looking to natural gas fuel cells. Are alternative power sources an outlier or will they become common for hyperscalers? Could these hyperscalers end up inadvertently driving some power and fuel resource discussions? So I, I brought this one up for maybe a little bit different reason than the, the article I found suggested. So how I interpret this is that AWS sees some issues in Oregon on the power grid and doesn't think they're going to have enough to be able to sustain the operations they have. So they're looking at alternative um, options such as these uh, natural gas fuel cells. The spin I kind of wanted to take on it is with all of the discussions happening around sustainability and how do we protect the environment, I'm almost wondering, are some of these large tech companies, some of these large hyperscalers eventually going to push the needle or bring up conversation on how do we how do we become sustainable? What are some of these other um, fuel options or power options that are available? Not necessarily because of the the sustainability um, reasons that are out there, but just because they need other ways to to power their data centers. So I I just thought that was really interesting to see what comes out of this and um, what changes might happen to the power grid or or other options that these hyperscalers may need to dig into. That wasn't something I was expecting to see. So Stephen, Dell continues to push to the edge with the new rugged VD4000 line of VxRail servers. These compact rack and standalone servers pack a VMware and vSAN solution for the scale all the way down to two nodes. What's your take on this new Edge solution? Yeah, I've been focusing quite a lot on Edge, as you've noticed if you've been reading my write-ups on uh, Gestalt IT lately or have been tuning in for some of the uh, podcast discussions and roundtable discussions we've posted. Uh, and also, of course, we're doing an Edge Field Day event in a few weeks with some of these companies. Um, now, Dell's solution is really interesting. I have to say, I, I would love to just give them a pat on the back for this solution because it is really smart. It is obviously incredibly well-engineered, and the stackable edge-optimized two-node servers are really, really cool. So here's the thing. You can't have a two-node server because what happens is if you lose any kind of connectivity between them, you can end up with what's called a split brain, where one server thinks it's the only survivor, the other one thinks it's the only survivor, and then the two of them just sort of go off and do their thing without um, knowing what's going on. Um, Dell solves this problem in their two-node server in a very cool way. It actually has a third um, micro node that is basically a vSAN witness. And so it is the tiebreaker. And it sits there as a um, like an extra node. We actually saw some of this stuff as well. Uh, previously, I saw a company that used like a Raspberry Pi as a witness node along with like two real nodes. Um, it's it's really cool. This ain't no Raspberry Pi though. If you look at the uh, the Dell uh, VD4510, 
and 4520, um, these little sleds, um, or if you look at the stackable, the VD4000Z stackables, um, you will see some amazingly good uh, ruggedized engineering in there. I think the only problem with this is that uh, they're kind of pushing the, uh, the, the cost issue. Now, I don't know how much these things cost because, of course, it's enterprise stuff and there's no like pricing. I mean, you know, we expect a price tag on it. But um, the engineering in this is so impressive. And the fact that it includes v vSAN and VMware vSphere makes me think that it's probably not cheap. It's probably reassuringly expensive. Now, that's probably okay for a lot of edge environments. And I should point out that what this is going to replace is not only not cheap, but incredibly expensive. A lot of these companies are using you know, full racks of servers and storage arrays and things. This thing is probably going to be cheaper than that. But when you compare it to some of the alternative edge solutions, uh, things that are built around Intel Nux or ruggedized uh, server PCs from Lenovo and, and things like that, it, it, I wonder about the cost uh, benefit of this thing. So uh, Dell, if you're listening, uh, let's talk price. But um, overall, wow, great engineering, a great job with this thing. And if you're a company that needs a really reliable VMware vSphere-based edge solution, uh, these things look great. Tim, uh, last year, uh, we were rolling our eyes and shaking our heads as every ad during the superb owl or big game, as we're supposed to call it, uh, was for some kind of crypto thing. And uh, some of them were good and some of them were bad. And all of them featured a lot of money and a lot of paid endorsements. Yet this year, we're hearing that there's not going to be a single one during the Super Bowl. Um, what's going on, man? I... I will start this off by saying I have always really been um, a crypto and blockchain novice. So th these kind of things really, uh, when I sat and watched the big game last year, I I'm with you. I looked at all of these ads, these high profile celebrities that were putting out this content about um, these different crypto technologies. And I, I was blown away. I was kind of talking, thinking to myself, wow, is this really where we're, we're heading? These are the things that we're advertising about. And then it seemed like we started getting some pushback and that that these different um, advertisers were bringing out this content and maybe not fully explaining what uh, what they were really selling or what they were really trying to get people to jump in on. And these advertisements really went silent. So I'm I'm kind of interested to know is if this is a. Um, a legal thing or just potentially a popularity thing that we don't want to dump money into uh, advertising for these different cryptocurrencies anymore. Or maybe it's at the point where it's so prevalent and everybody's jumping in on it that, hey, maybe they don't need to advertise for it anymore. So Stephen, NetApp introduced the All Flash C-Series this week, adding a new line in their on-tap offerings. It uses QLC Flash and is positioned as a less expensive and greener alternative. Is this the real deal? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I have to say that NetApp did a nice job uh, engineering this thing. Um, so the thing in, I don't know, storage talk, watch out. Um, there's this thing called QLC, which is basically um, uh, NAND flash chips. You can, you can store one bit, you know, on, off. You can store two bits, um, you know, I guess uh, on, kind of on and off. 
you can store three bits on, kind of on, a little bit on and off, and you can store four and so on and so on. There's PLC, there's more. Um, the problem with QLC is that it's um, kind of notoriously fickle and a little bit unreliable and, I don't know, just a little sketchy. People worry about it. Um, it's been proven now. There's uh, QLC arrays from basically um, every other major storage vendor, including, importantly, Pure Storage with their Flash Array C. Um, and these things have actually done a really nice job um, with, with customers that are willing to adopt them because they're cheaper, they're denser, they use less power, and, and all of those things are great. Now, what Pure did with theirs is they used their uh, mainstream flash array or flash braid op op operating system to uh, support these uh, QLC uh, flash devices natively. And, and like I said, they've been making hay with this. NetApp is doing the same thing here. Um, NetApp was shy, I think, of using QLC because I think they were worried about the, um, the reliability and also just the customer perception of the thing. But they finally embraced it. And interestingly, they embraced it with the same letter of the alphabet that Pure did. Uh, so I guess C means uh, QLC now um, instead of Q. Um, so I, I, I was pre-briefed on this. Um, I was pretty impressed by it. Because the thing that you need to understand is that the QLC is basically an all-flash, or the, the C series, an all-flash uh, NetApp on tap um, that does everything you think that NetApp does. It supports everything. It does everything. It integrates with everything. Um, you know, cloud management, protocols, scalability, all that kind of stuff. Basically, it's everything you want from a NetApp storage array, except optimized to use QLC, and thus cheaper, greener, more compact, etc. Um, so they did a nice job with this product. Frankly, my feeling on their briefing was the whole time I'm listening, I'm like, well, why would somebody buy anything other than this? I mean, this thing sounds amazing. And I guess the answer is uh, maybe it's a little slower. Maybe you're a little worried about the reliability or the scalability or something, or maybe, you know, hybrid uh, with disk drives is still a bit cheaper. But overall, um, I think they got a winner here. Um, one final point, NetApp already had a C-series. Uh, they had an entry-level version of their A-series. And they've, I, I guess, kind of renamed that to be another A-series, uh, which kind of simplifies the lineup. So, you know, kind of going forward, uh, like I said, C-series means QLC. And uh, now NetApp's there along with their competitors like Pure and Vast and Dell with a QLC offering. And um, it's a pretty good one. Tim, um, we've all been watching the continued announcements of large tech companies laying off uh, various percentages of their staff. And I know that all of us have also been trying to reach out to support those people who are being laid off, help to you know help them find their next thing, or at least just give them a kind word. Um, is there any way to know though, what's going on with these layoffs and how many of these are tech professionals and kind of which area of the company this is coming from? Um, and, and what happens to those people? I'm seeing some of my friends um, quickly getting a new job at another large tech firm. I'm seeing others sort of going into a remote work or going into different industries. Um, what are you seeing here, Tim? Look, this is something that's that's definitely a downer conversation, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious about this. What really started this for me was, I think it was a tweet from Greg Farrow that talked about the the percentages of these layoffs and the fact that we don't really know unless these these large tech companies are putting it out there which I don't really think they are we don't really know who specifically is being affected other than we see um, 
on social media, people post saying, hey, I was affected by this layoff. But it does seem to be varying uh, specialties. We aren't really sure what percentages are affecting marketing personnel or uh, direct IT workers. So I think that's that's interesting. And we hear the the rumors of a lot of these layoffs are because of upturn in hiring during the pandemic. But I, I always think about that and wonder, okay, I get it in certain um, companies like Zoom. Zoom, I believe, was another one that announced some layoffs even as of today. Uh, but there are some other industries out there that are are laying off large percentages of staff that I, I think, did they really have to to upscale during the pandemic? So maybe it's it's something else. I'm, I'm not really sure there. But I think that it'll be interesting to see how many people end up jumping to a different large tech company or the specific uh, tech specialty workers if they take this opportunity to take their talents and really jump into other industries and provide value to uh, smaller companies or even go into the, the enterprise space. I think there are many different industries in the enterprise space that could really benefit from uh, tech workers that have spent time at these these large uh, vendors and, and tech companies. So changing gears, Stephen, enterprise uh, data protection firm Haiku just introduced a new cloud backup offering featuring an extensible marketplace that could support just about any SaaS in the cloud. The Protege R Cloud comes out of the gate with an API and developer kit, as well as support for some popular SaaS data sources. What do you think of this comprehensive offering? Yeah, this is a really, really cool. Um, I got a pre-briefing of this from uh, my friends over at Haiku, and um, we are very, very excited uh, about what they're doing um, here with our cloud. So just to, to kind of um, talk about what's going on, they're not the first company to back up SaaS uh, data sources. In fact, this isn't even um, uh, Haiku's first attempt to back up uh, SaaS data sources. Uh, what they're trying to do here is build an extensible platform, an open extensible platform that basically brings um, enterprise tech data protection knowledge and allows you, uh, either you or uh, the company themselves or Haiku, to build a uh, plugin that, that will uh, basically extract data from whatever data source your data lives on. This is incredibly important. And as I said to the team when they first kind of hinted about what they were doing, uh, if you look at most companies now, they don't just have data on you know one or two SaaS providers. They have data on dozens and dozens of SaaS providers. And if you know the problem with some of these SaaS data protection uh, offerings is that yeah they might support Office 365, but do they also support like this other really weird combination of SaaS? You know oh well we use Jira and Slack and you know we also have some data on I don't know whatever else. You know do you support that? And the answer is probably going to be no, or we will, or we're looking into it, or that's on the roadmap. Well, with this whole marketplace approach, uh, what could happen is somebody could say, you know what, I want to add support for that. Whether, again, it's an integrator, it's the SaaS tool themselves, it's Haiku themselves. Basically, they've tried to build something that's extensible and more you know, cloud appropriate. And, and that actually really is, is an exciting prospect because it means that they might be able to ramp up and, and, and address this sort of long tail of SaaS data sources out there. 
At the same time, of course, you know, haiku, uh, if you don't know about them, I mean, they're a really, really respected um, uh, enterprise data protection provider. They really know what they're doing with data protection. So by bringing this stuff and having sort of this extensible marketplace, I think that they, they really could kind of step ahead in a crowded field of data protection companies. Now, that being said, there's a big if here. And the big if is if they can get integrations into the marketplace that support the majority of the things that customers need. I imagine that um, anyone who adopts this is going to very quickly find that it supports 80% of their data and not the other 20%. And they're going to be contacting someone and saying, hey, we need support for this one and this one and this other one. And we kind of like this other one over here and this other thing there. And, and that gives you know everybody a lot of work. But over time, uh, basically, the rising tide of support will lift all these boats and everybody will get support. Also, I do suspect that every other company in the data protection space is going to look at this and say, hey, and try to do this too. So uh, good on you, Haiku. Um, I love the approach. Uh, and actually, I think it's good for all of us because if uh, we can back up the data across all of our SaaSs, it's, uh, it's good for everyone. Stephen, now that I have survived my first ever rapid fire rundown of topics, let's uh, take a closer look at some of the other stories that uh, we're following and let's start across the pond, like you mentioned, with Cisco Live happening this week, uh, Cisco Live EMEA. Cisco's looking to embrace the growing field of IoT with some new announcements around rugged switches and access points, as well as new dashboard design to address the needs of operating teams. The new Cisco IoT dashboard allows existing IT teams to manage Cisco IoT offerings, such as the IE3100 rugged series switch and the IW9165 series access point. The goal is to provide more integration between these teams to help create synergy, as well as provide enhanced security monitoring through the new CyberVision IoT security platform. Cisco's also announced several new initiatives aimed at providing sustainability in the enterprise IT space, leveraging platforms such as WebEx to reduce the carbon footprint of in-person meetings is just the start. Partner, company, partner companies like Peer Storage are working to reduce power consumption in devices as well, providing upgrade paths to reduce the amount of e-waste for end-of-life hardware. The goal is helping IT departments adopt sustainable methods and integrate those into their workflows for future while also streamlining operations and reducing CapEx and OpEx budgets. So Stephen, what are you hearing from Tom across the pond? Is he is he well rested? Does he know what day, month, or year it is? What's happening over at Cisco Live? Well, lots happening over there. So we've got a great group of delegates over there. We've got uh, the field day team doing field day at Cisco Live, Amelia, uh, and and honestly, there's a lot of announcements and a lot of discussions going on. I think that the important aspect here, though, is to sort of step back and look at this strategically. So Cisco has always been known. I think if you ask people like, oh, what does Cisco make? You're going to say routers. You're going to say switches. You're going to think enterprise, that kind of thing. Well, that market is um, solid. Uh, they're still buying stuff. Uh, Cisco has competitors. But of course, there's the whole world of everything else, right? There's everything outside the data center. Like I said, we're, we're talking about edge for edge field day here. Uh, we're looking at 5G deployments. We're looking at industrial IoT. We're looking at all sorts of stuff. And Cisco is, is attacking that market as well. 
So one of the things I want to start with is Meraki. So Cisco uh, bought Meraki. They were a tech field day presenting company independent of their own. Cisco bought them and brought them into the, into the crew as a really, really clever um, cloud-managed networking solution uh, provider. And, and full disclosure, we actually bought the Meraki solution and used it here in the Gestalt IT HQ because it was just a really nice, um, you know, useful uh, business class, but not like Cisco enterprise class solution. Um, Meraki uh, introduced a really cool new um, uh, edge router uh, at, at the Tech Field Day presentation. Um, and, and they were talking about the, the, the amazing things that it can do. Basically, it, you, you just power it up. It's got 5G in it. It gives you Wi-Fi. Uh, it can also act sort of as CBRS, kind of going the other way. And the thing is like super ruggedized and, and super plug and play, super hands-off, which is all you need in industrial IoT and edge settings because you can't like send a tech out there. So check out the Tech Field Day presentation of that thing. Another thing that I'm personally kind of excited about is the new Catalyst 9200 line. Um, the reason I am is because uh, we were at the introduction of a previous generation of this thing. And basically, this is a uh, PoE um, uh, fanless uh, switch for sort of edge, remote office, uh, you know, semi-industrial applications. This thing is the next generation. It's got a lot of power. It's got uh, M gig. Um, it, it really is a, a very, very cool, uh, solid industrial IoT type device. But Tim, I know that you were looking at some of these other uh, rugged switches that they're coming out and APs. What, what do you think of the uh, the Catalyst IE thirty one hundred and so on? So th this is a really um, interesting industry option for me is Cisco is has been investing in the industrial space for for quite some time now and I I'm an enterprise uh, networking person and I just haven't seen the um, the different use cases that are out there I, I'm trying to understand are they are they really targeting these these warehouse environments or how much of this investment you mentioned edge earlier Stephen where we're trying to get data and services as close to the user as possible in these potentially service provider points of presence uh, locations that might not be as conducive as our, our modern day data centers are. So I'm wondering how much edge is bringing up the need for some of these um, industrial switches like the, the 3100, and we just want to have these ruggedized devices that we can put in these locations and not have to worry about having uh, good operating environments and that kind of thing. Is is that your thought that that's where a big play for these industrial switches are going? Or is there something else I'm just completely missing? Yeah, I think Cisco's basically looking for, for more mushrooms to plant their devices underneath. You know what I mean? They're, they're uh, you know, they can't just be in the closet. They can't just be in the data center. They've got to be everywhere. And and these things are everywhere. I mean, if you look at the at the lineup here with these catalyst switches, these ruggedized fanless switches. So I talked about the ninety two hundred, um, the thirty one hundred. Um, it, it looks like it belongs on a tank or something. I mean, and and the and these access points. I mean, that that's what Cisco's trying to do here. They're trying to basically sell into everywhere, and I mean everywhere: um, retail, restaurants, um, industrial, you know, mines ships at sea, I don't know, everything, you know, and, and, and th that's smart because that's where data is increasingly. That's what we're seeing with Edge Field Day. Um, there's a sort of a, an interesting aspect of Edge where some applications would not be possible with centralized IT. 
um, things like uh, machine learning processing of camera data. Um, we talked about that on the Utilizing AI podcast last season, where there are now applications out there that have, basically, they just point cameras at stuff, uh, smokestacks, boilers, uh, machines, and so on, and use machine learning to watch and tell me if that thing breaks, okay? Um, you can't send that kind of video data back to the core. It just It's just not physically possible. And so you can't have this application unless you have IT at the edge, which means that you need edge compute, you need uh, you know, scalable uh, you know, management of that stuff, and you need connectivity. And that's really what this stuff is all about. Cisco is also leaning really heavily into PoE with these things, high-powered PoE, because um, the last thing you want to do is have a little wall wart sitting there you know, that you plug into the wall in a factory, and somebody comes by and, oh, I need to plug something in here, and they unplug it and plug something else in. Yeah, that's just not going to do. So having everything running over a single Ethernet cable, data and power, is, is very, very smart. And, and I definitely do see these things as a huge growth opportunity for a big company like Cisco. Again, the challenge is that, you know, for every Cisco device, there's, you know, 50 smaller companies that are trying to uh, compete in this space as well. Um, but of course, that, that, that has a, a, a sort of a, a flip side of it in that Cisco has sales reps and relationships with a lot of these big companies. And, um, and, and it's likely that Cisco will be able to put together sort of package deals that, that make them competitive with these small companies. Do you buy that, Tim? I, I do think that integrating their devices more and more into organizations is, is where the industry is going, whether that's natural or where Cisco's um, pushing that direction. You brought up PoE a minute ago, and I, I really want to touch on that because We've been treating uh, in recent years, the network is just becoming another utility to companies. It's got to be like water. It's got to be like electricity. It just has to be there. And really with these these POE offerings and setting it up to where uh, manufacturers can make more devices that rely on POE is really just pushing that initiative that the network infrastructure is becoming a definite needed utility to, to run organizations. And I think this, um, this line of ruggedized industrial gear is just taking that a step forward. You're going to have, I think, warehouses and in, in other uh, industrial areas like that, that rely on their devices, plug in two switches. And like you said, they, they get their data communications and their power, um, from those switches, and that's that's just going to be mainstream uh, even more than it already is. Yeah, I'm still a little bit, um, I, I guess, on the fence about uh, the Smart Buildings Initiative and PoE-based lighting and things like that. I, I got to say, um, Cisco's been showing this stuff off, especially at Cisco Live and especially in Europe for a long time. Um, and 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 Smart Buildings sound great, but as somebody who's worked in this field, um, you know, we tried to do a lot of automation here in the office and so on. Um, it's a little challenging. There's some pitfalls. Um, I like the fact that they're going in that direction, but I'm not 100% convinced. One of the aspects of smart building, though, that I am convinced about is the sustainability aspect. And I think that this is another thing that, that we're really seeing a lot of at Cisco Live, um, EMEA, this year. And that is talking about um, carbon, talking about power consumption, talking about efficiency and overall environmental sustainability. Uh, for example, uh, Cisco's WebEx now has a carbon emission insights um, dashboard that you can that a company can use to kind of estimate 
the uh, energy usage and CO2 emissions from their collaboration devices, basically to, to look at the power that's being you know, sucked in by all these devices everywhere. Um, I don't know if that's going to work out. I don't know if it's going to make a big difference, but it's, it's the right idea. And we're hearing similar things from Cisco as well and some of their partners. So, for example, one of the partners, uh, Pure Storage, that is there at Cisco Live um, is talking uh, about how they're working with Cisco to reduce the uh, energy footprint of the data center infrastructure. And they're actually going to be talking to Tom Hollingsworth about that. There's going to be an interview posted on uh, Gestalt IT about that. And, and it's really interesting because Pure has a wonderful um, technology, uh, this evergreen technology, where basically they replace the outdated components, but they leave the rest of the components running and they can do this over time. And to the extent that some um, pure devices in the field actually have like the original, I don't know, power cord and like mounting brackets or something left over from like the first one 10 years ago and, and everything else has been replaced, but the thing has never been down. It's just like, we replace this, we replace that. Now that's sustainable. And, and as we talked about as well, when we when we look at um, at flash-based storage instead of disk-based storage, uses a lot less power, takes up a lot less space, which means less cooling, which means less um, overall energy impact from that. And again, I, I really applaud uh, the storage industry for sort of leaning into this whole aspect of sustainability and reducing power consumption, because storage has always been this big monster in the data center. And, and hopefully, uh, what we're going to see from companies like Pure and Cisco is um, maybe a little monster in the data center? These are really mind-blowing initiatives to me. You, you talked about WebEx and how it's integrating with the smart building aspects to be able to um, take those air quality measurements and not only just report that, hey, we may have an issue here, but they can actively tie into uh, like the HVAC systems to start pumping in fresh air into these rooms where uh, maybe there's there's more people than there's supposed to be. I mean, I said that's mind blowing. I have a hard enough time finding a room to book some days, let alone some of these um, sustainability efforts. And I, I think when people hear, at least when I hear sustainability, I think more on the the policy side and these are the things that we have to do to make our businesses, our planet more sustainable, but maybe don't always get into what it is we're doing and the, in the practical applications of this and what Cisco's done, the investments it's put into smart building efforts and, and WebEx to, to help some of these sustainability efforts is, is interesting to me. And you mentioned lighting. And when I first heard that all the different smart components, I'm like, well, hang on. Those rely on PoE. We like to do maintenance uh, to our network systems. We like to do code upgrades. We like to do reloads, that kind of thing. I don't want the lights to turn off every time I do that. And they've really invested a lot into uh, fast software upgrades to where when you take a, a switch down for an upgrade, all the devices, including the lights, including the APs, won't lose power. They'll just lose their connectivity, and when um, the switch comes back and the data connectivity is restored, they'll be able to communicate again, but they won't lose their PoE. And I think to add into these sustainability efforts, you have to have that. You can't turn the lights off <laughs> to do maintenance. Yeah, and it makes it, um, I think, more important to have an integrated solution. And I, again, that's what I what I like about what Cisco is doing here is that they're trying to build basically a uh, sort of a ubiquitous network everywhere. 
and um, I, th I think it's good stuff overall. Uh, as I said, we've got some of this stuff in our own office. Um, we have one of these Cisco PoE switches powering some of our stuff, and um, and and it, and it works, and it's um, and it's pretty reliable. In fact, it's been more reliable than the freaking LED light bulb. So, <laughs> uh, so it's it's not so bad, not so bad. So. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for joining us here today, Tim. Uh, it's been great having you on the rundown. Um, let's take a look at what's going on in the weeks ahead. So as I mentioned, uh, we've got Cisco Live happening right now. Uh, go over to Tech Field Day, uh, look for hashtag Cisco Live EMEA and TFDX, and uh, you'll see some live streaming video or some recorded video from that uh, presentations uh, that are going on right there. Um, pretty soon here on February 22nd and 23rd as well, we've got Edge Field Day. We've been talking a lot about Edge on the rundown and we've got some of these edge companies coming in and, and presenting that. We've got a bunch of brand new delegates. It's really, really exciting. So check out the Tech Field Day website for that. And also we've got another Tech Field Day event coming up in March where we're gonna have some CXL companies and some networking companies coming in to talk about what they're doing. Uh, so that's uh, Tech Field Day 27. Uh, check that out as well. Thanks for joining us uh, for the uh, Gestalt IT rundown this week. You can catch new episodes every Wednesday as a YouTube video or in your favorite podcast application. We'll be back next Wednesday to talk about all the IT news of the week that was with uh, Tom Hollingsworth and myself. But until then, for myself and for Tim Bertino and all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours a plugged-in POE day.